Uh, the last bastion of freeform. WCBN FM and Ava. Sounds like a bunch of left-wing hippies to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, that mic is on. The mic's Phil. on. Oh, my God. Turn off the microphone. I can't look at the rocket launch, the trophy wives of the astronauts, and I won't listen to their words, because I like birds. Good afternoon. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today I'm so happy to have Keith Taylor here in the studio. Hi, Keith. Keith, welcome. Yeah, it's good to be here. It's good to have you back. Oh, yeah. Friend of the show. Um, yeah, friend been, of you. And friend, friend of me. Yeah. <laughs> you've, been here, you've, you've been here. We've talked together here. You and the yeah. Liz have talked Liz, together. Liz and I, I, was, I was on the phone in a parking lot up north. And because at the bio station, At the right? bio station and, you know, went to the place where my phone would actually work. Oh, and Liz and I talked. I don't know what, I can't remember a word I said. But really good things. Really, really good things. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Through the years, living writers, right? Yeah. Keith Taylor, the Liz and T. All right. That's, and yeah. some before you guys too. I've oh been, my gosh. I've been around a long time. Oh yeah, right. I'm sure. Yeah. How many other times have you been on the show? Oh I, I, three, four. Oh gosh, yeah. you know, I'm having deja vu now. I'm thinking that we've talked about this before and I've have been we? like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've been all I'll take fiery. publicity I can get to you. <laughs> well, anytime. I think you should just swing it, swing by here. And, okay. um, but before we go any further, I, I should say we're actually we're here for many reasons. One is because we like birds. I mean, that's, that's right. <laughs> and yeah. but the most important one being the new book um, out with Wayne State University Press, Press Made in Michigan Writers Series. The Birdwile. The Birdwile. Um, yeah. yeah. Your poems and illustrations by Tom Port. That's right. That's right. And the Birdwile is a phrase I resurrected from a deep dark corner of Emerson's journals. People people tell me they can't believe that nobody's ever used this before. Yes. But but uh, uh, but yeah. But I found it. Well, actually, a friend of mine found it for me and told me I should use it. Who's the friend? Should did. we give him a shout out? Well, we should. Except he's 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 left us. <laughs> Uh, the late oh, A.L. Pete Becker, who was a wonderful professor of linguistics here um, oh. and uh, did work in Southeast Asian languages. But he was also a complete nut for Emerson. 
And uh, he, this is an obscure corner of Emerson's journals. And Emerson defined the bird while as, uh, in a natural chronometer, a bird while may be admitted as one of the meters since the space most of the wild birds will allow you to make your observations on them when they alight near you in the woods is a pretty equal and familiar measure. So, and while indicates time, and he's talking about space, so a wild bird will give us so much time and so much space to look at it, and then it just says bye. That's it. You know, and people always think they're sneaking around. And I always figure birds know what's going on a lot more than we do out there in the woods because they live there. Oh, like the birds will know, even if you think you're being very quiet. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. There are no secrets to them. And and so and you have a poem in here where you're 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 sitting and then a a bird kind of alights behind you. Oh, yeah, in my backyard where it's his 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 wing just touches me Um, across your cheek. Right. These kinds of things happen when you're out there. People say, how do these things happen to you? And I said, well, it's because you go out there and you wait and they happen. (laughs) So because it sounds like you've also seen some kind of spectacular things with hummingbirds too I, I have yeah the the the, the humming I've got a triptych on hummingbirds um, and you know but part of it is again again it's these things that people tell you um, and then suddenly you see them and you go oh wow I know that I'm just trying to find my humming there we go it's on uh, there we go this is a hummingbird triptych so the first one is a uh, 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 ornithologist who teaches who works for the nature conservancy and who teaches a bird bird class that's dedicated to him for dave ewart and he actually told me what these hummingbirds were doing when they seemed to be just hovering in the middle air midair between things and and uh, the other one yeah it was my own garden and then the other the last one um is a thing I actually did see. Do you um, want to read it? Sure, sure. Uh, the whole thing or just the last one? The whole, whole okay, thing. Okay, so this is in three parts. All of them eight-line parts. It's, so it's called a ruby-throated hummingbird triptych. The ruby, you know, the hummingbirds are just about back now. I think there's there's notice that the first ones are here. So if you have your hummingbird feeder, put it out. Um, the first one is called If You Want to Find a Nest, and that becomes the poem. Hummingbird nests are these gorgeous little thimble-sized things that are kind of amazing. If you want to find a nest, lie down on a long abandoned road in a northern forest, a warm day with just a few insects, and look up. With luck, you might see a hummingbird stopping between dead twigs of a red pine, collecting shimmering gossamer from spiders. With more like luck, you might see her carry it off to line her nest. So, I mean, this in that section, the 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 day after Dave Ewart told me that that's what they were doing, picking hummingbird strands that I couldn't see from the ground, I was taking a nap out in the woods, and I looked up, and this hummingbird did it, and then it flew off, and I followed it, and I watched her put these um, spider threads in her little nest. It's like to find a hummingbird nest. I mean, I don't think I've only found two in my life. So that one, and then this the the second one is from from my from my backyard, data from a late summer garden. Great spangled fritillary working the butterfly bush, long tongue probing the small white flowers, followed by a hummingbird, female, snaky tongue, preening pollen from her thin bill, frightened off by an imperious monarch nectaring lazily on the pink blossoms of a neighboring plant. The third one is in memory of an old teacher of mine, um, an old Cherokee 
poet. Um, his Cherokee name was Gojiji. His English name was Carol Arnett. Um, he has a wonderful poem um, called National Defense about the swallows in his backyard. So, but mine ends up being um, about hummingbirds. National Defense. A male ruby-throated hummingbird drinks from a sapsucker well, holes drilled in a precise series on the trunk of a white birch. The hummingbird moves its bill into each hole, except when a National Guard jet roars over at treetop level. Then the bird backs out, watching the plane until it's gone. And yeah, I actually really did see this. I'm, you know, sapsuckers are woodpeckers, and they drill these holes, and, and the, the sap comes out. Insects collect them. They come and eat them. The hummingbirds come and, and, and drink the sap. Um, so I was watching this hummingbird do that, and then, and then it... it stop and watch the jet and I'm thinking this tiny little bird with this metabolism that's racing at this incredible speed stops and watch it, watches a, a, a National Guard jet um, is so aware yeah, of like the presence of yeah, this other exactly. flying yeah. thing being right. and just sort of checked it out and then went back to work you know as soon as it was over it was very sort of wonderful and very bizarre how did you start watching birds, Keith? Like, what was well? The first I, you know, I think moment. I actually started when I was a kid. I think yeah. it was it goes way back when I was when I was a child in Western Canada, um, as I remember getting bird books and reading bird stories and things. Then you know, when I became a bohemian and you know went to live in Paris and you know lived on the street and things, I was too cool for birds. Um, and then it was when I moved to Michigan, which is now more than forty years ago. It was like, okay, well, I'm living in Michigan. I'm not that cool. It's not Paris. So I can watch birds again. So so then I started, you know, then it started getting a little... It gets me outdoors. I'm a pretty sedentary guy otherwise. And it gets me outdoors. I like being outdoors. Um, I learn stuff. I mean, basically, every time I, I open something in the biological sciences, it's new to me. So um, cool facts. It's so it's so funny. I'm trying to picture you because in, in Paris you might have had the birds, um, like as you were going off to sleep at night. Like yeah, might have been yeah. starting their songs or so. And yeah, um, but but I I really regret. I mean, the years I was sort of you know kid, nineteen to twenty three, living in Europe and having no money. But I I I got in some very cool places and I was surrounded by what must have been very cool birds that I've never seen since. Um, or would have had the opportunity to see since. I really regret that I didn't do that. Do you do you travel to see birds now? Oh, yeah, Is yeah, that yeah. I just did today, T. I drove across the state. Muskegon. I just, I barely got back. <laughs> I, I uh, went to the uh, wastewater treatment plant in Mus outside Muskegon, Michigan. That's not Paris. <laughs> That's not Paris. That is definitely not Paris. Um, and uh, I wanted to see a ruff. There, all last week there was a ruff there. A ruff is a, is a fairly large shorebird that nests in northern Siberia and winters in North Africa. Um, and they occasionally wander into North America, but I've never seen one. So it was all last week there was one there. It was reported as recently as Monday, but um, I did not see it today. So I drove, uh, burned up a lot of fossil fuels to try to see a bird that I did not see. <laughs> um, to go, you know, with uh, wastewater treatment plants and and all the things that get processed in waste, around wastewater treatment plants. Although the one in Muskegon is very state-of-the-art. It's very cool. Um, and uh, but, but I saw a lot of birds today, but I did not see the rough, which well, is too bad. What, what birds did you see? Well, I saw that there were large flocks of uh, lesser yellow legs, which is a, a very long-legged, bright yellow legs. Um, 
that's also a shorebird that the bird associates with. I saw probably 50 of those. Uh, pectoral sandpipers that are smaller, but I saw 100 of those. Um, and uh, um, oh, what did I see? I saw there were gigantic flocks of horned larks in these fields that are, the horned larks are gorgeous little birds that are pretty common around here. So, you know, I saw probably 20, 25 species of birds, but I did and, not see the one I went for. And describe, like, so when you arrive, are you sort of in... Um, galoshes, and are you walking into the, the marsh to see the shorebirds? I, I do do that. I uh-huh. mean, I, I have done that, but actually at the wastewater treatment plant, once you get permission from the administration, you just drive along the dikes. Um, I only got out of my car a couple of times. I just would drive my car, park it, and scan over these little little fields of water um, that is settling and uh, look to see what was feeding there. And so you had to actually get permission to go on the grounds for uh, You know, this, it was easy. Yeah, it... I just showed up and I said, you know, here you guys give permission. And he said, sure we do. And he filled out a little form and I said, do I give you money? And he said, no, no. And I said, thank you. And tell your <laughs> boss, thank you. And so, But yeah, so I do that a lot. Um, and there, there are now so many things online. Just a few weeks ago, uh, there was a, an even rarer bird here, an ivory gull, that was um, seen Interesting story seen by a 16-year-old girl who was taking classes at, at U of M Flint, um, and she and she not much of a birder up till then, and she said, "Well, that gull looks very different. Ivory gull is almost completely snow white, no gray or, or very little black on it. Black only when it's a juvenile." And she took a picture, put it on a birding Michigan site on Facebook, and man, everybody went nuts. So I got up there within a couple of days of seeing it and saw that bird right away. There were 150 people looking at it. I talked to people when I was up there who'd come from Missouri to see it, and some people uh, found me that had come from Philadelphia. So you drive it. up, and there's I all drive these up. people yes. sort, of they're, they're sort of all around, milling. right in the middle of the U of M Flint campus where this bird was, and great views of it. It was It's a fairly tame bird because it comes from way up north. It's not afraid of people. Um, and it, you know, it was probably sick or a little addled, but but nonetheless, it was great to see, and it was you know, very exciting. To see. I mean, I okay, I wept when I first saw it. It's like, oh, there's this gorgeous white bird, and it's right here, so I can see. It. Um, and but um, and a couple days later, um, well, a week later, it died. Um, and and you know, people went to see it in the morning, and they found the body floating in the Flint, ri- Flint River. So of course, with all the stuff that has happened around the Flint River in the last couple of years. I'm sure that bird did not die because of, well, I'm pretty sure that it did not die because of pollution in the Flint River. Um, but uh, um, thousands of miles from home, it had reasons to, to, be, to die. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, it meant something. So I put it on Facebook, and all my friends, hundreds of friends liked it, and, you know, we're, had the little teary emoticons. Um, and and of my, I have a lot of poet friends. They have now there are five poems about my sighting of the ivory gull, and I have not yet written one, <laughs> but I'm going to. And that was the opening line, right? <laughs> there, are, yes. there are now five. <laughs> All my friends are writing poems about the ivory gull, but I'm the one that saw it. <laughs> it's mine. It's mine. <laughs> yeah, but it was a go- it was a gorgeous bird, way out of place, and 
was very exciting for lots of people to see it. And the birding community started a fund me site for this girl from, from you know, some little suburb of, of Flint who doesn't have a lot of money, um, so she can go to college and study ornithology. And I was like, they raised a couple thousand dollars in five dollar increments. So it was great. It was a great story. Oh my gosh, it could yeah. be life changing. Oh, you could be. Who knows? Could be. Who yeah. knows? Yeah, clearly she's smart. She's taking classes already at sixteen. But right. But, you know, well, in the bird direction, it might. It's yeah, what I mean. Wouldn't that be yeah. cool? Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> Well, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back. Um, And when we come back, uh, we'll hear some more poems um, from Keith Taylor, who's here in the studio today with us. His book, The Bird While, out with Wayne State University Press. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Keith Taylor is here. Um, his book of poems, The Bird While, out with Wayne State University Press. Um, many thanks to Christina Stonehill for sending for sending the book um, our way. Um, and this book is in Made in Michigan Writers Series. Um, what's, what's that mean to you to be part of that? Because that yeah, feels it, like... a and, I, and I'm not from Michigan. As a matter of fact, I'm not even an American citizen. you're Canadian. I am Canadian, yeah. <laughs> but I've lived here for 40 years, and I certainly feel a part of the place. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I married a woman from Detroit. I, I, I know the state well. Um, I travel all over it. Um, I like the region. Um, I'm more comfortable talking about the region than the state, but nonetheless, I, I, uh, I love the region. Um, and so to have this series from Wayne State and the, these women who, who for the last 10 years have been running Wayne State University Press, they are incredible. They are so filled with energy. They, you know, they're, they're out there. And so far, that hasn't diminished. Like, sooner or later, it's got to go down. But they're Why? fine. Why? <laughs> it, 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 it always does. <laughs> I mean, I think, scientific you know, principle. <laughs> I mean, I've lived in Michigan long enough to see all the, the, the three university presses. And, you know, the, the interest rises and falls. But right now... 
Wayne State, the interest is all right there. And they've got this series has gotten a bunch of money from the Meyer Foundation. So it's endowed and, and they, a great acquisitions editor who's looking all the time. It's so many good people involved. Exactly. It seems like, exactly. And yeah. It's, it's, and it's fun to go. They're in a beautiful building over on Woodward. So it's fun to go over there. And they're looking, I mean, they've published a lot of people of my generation, but they're looking younger. They have two books coming out next year by former students of mine. Um, one, Russ Brakefield, who did an MFA oh, here. Oh, wonderful. They're, yeah. He just got a contract for his first. All book. Right, I think Russ. that'll be a 2018 <laughs> then. A student of mine, you know, I think she's in her 30s, mid-30s now, uh, Elizabeth Schmuel, they're doing a book of hers. Oh, yes. Um, a bunch of very sexy poems that, that uh, yeah, they're fun. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah so, so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but back to your book, sure. The Bird While. Um. So we were talking about uh, about going to look for, when, when, a, when a bird watcher finds out that there is one rare bird in a particular place. We go looking for that one bird. We're probably not going to find more than that one individual. So it's called chasing a bird. So a few years ago, there was one ancient murelet. An ancient murelet is a bird that spends most of its life on the open water of the North Pacific. And this bird was at the mouth of the St. Joseph River between St. Joe and Benton Harbor, Michigan. So I went chasing the ancient murelet. Um, and it got, I was at the time, I was having a lot of sort of recurring dreams about, uh, about a, a figure, a muse figure. Um, and, and I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to admit it that yes, the muse was female, she was young, um, and she was associated with the lake. So it was a very sort of Botticellian kind of muse figure that I had. So I, I associated these two things. Um, I also, lived a, a, a short, well, high school years in South Bend, Indiana, and don't remember it fondly. So um, my, my South Bend friends tell me I'm very unfair but, but uh, about it, but adolescence and everything. So this, all of that comes together in this poem called Chasing the Ancient Murelet. Um, and it begins by defining where the name comes from. Ancient, because of a gray mantle thrown over its shoulders, which look hunched against the weather of the North Pacific, its real home, not far from, too far from this place at the edge of Lake Michigan to be imagined, where the untouched but beautiful young run down the beach in summertime, longing to leave their parents who make steel appliances and claim to love the wind and winter. The bird is lost or brave or blown here by westerlies strong enough to reshape its instincts, to bring it down to the dirty mouth of a river that drains the abandoned car factories of South Bend, and the ancient murelet bobs in these choppy, irregular freshwater swells, diving often after crustaceans that haven't lived here for a geologic epoch, but taking what minnows it can find to keep hunger off until it dies here in a place it doesn't belong, where it can't find the right food or mate, but where I find it, following clear directions on the Internet to catch a quick glimpse as it rises between waves of its two-toned bill and the large head, bulky, oversized, on its small, diminished body. Thank you, Keith. Sure. So the ancient murelet, I mean, if you know what seabirds look like, it's sort of the archetypal seabird. Well, actually, the first drawing in in here, right before the first poem, is, is an ancient murelet. Really? And that so, was that something that Tom Port did um, 
specifically because of the poem within the book. I'm pretty sure. He, I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah, I don't think he would have had occasion to draw one before that. Um, and uh, <laughs> just uh, yeah, you just right. do it, you know, um, for and, Audubon. And he did, and, and and then I either he or or the people at Wayne State decided to put it right there at the beginning, and I and I kind of. I kind of liked that it came became at the begin came at the Why? beginning. Why? So, well, I mean, in some ways, that poem defines much of the book for me. Um, the fact that I'm out there looking, the fact that it's there's a, a tragic story associated with that individual bird, the fact that it's connected, at least in my mind, um, with the making of art. Um, so you know that we have this really lovely pencil drawing of a of a or is it ink? I think it's pencil, of 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 an ancient mulet right at the beginning of the book kind of sets the tone. I think. And so, why why did you put the poem further into the interior? Well, um, it's complicated, but the book has okay. a, the book has an arc in my mind. The poems the poems move in a particular place. They start in a place. Um, sort of memories of, of, of things, of travel, even though they're placed at home. And then it goes through some time in Europe, my time and my daughter's time. Uh, and then we return home, and then there are all these things that go on at home, and some of those things are not so nice. And per, the, 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 the tone of the book goes way down in the middle, talk about extinction, both of, of animal species and maybe even human extinction, and then tries to come up toward the end with some moments of hope. Um, that that hopefully are that hopefully are clear eyed, clear eyed moments of things to hope for. But um, that's a lot to put in one little book of poems. But that's that was sort of what was in my mind. But well, that feels that feels right. It's um, it's important. Also, sometimes I know with poems you can read one and it can be like you can open to a page and read and it can be just the right yeah. poem for the moment or you, yeah. you're finding something yes. in it. Yes, um, absolutely. And it can also be, you can, you can read a poem and it can be the poem of the book. And it was like, you don't even have to read the book. This is the whole emotional. If you're, if you're, if you're not a poet reading for, to find things to steal, you can get the whole emotional moment of, of the book in in one poem and and it's and I think many people do that maybe that's one And that's of, what this what this poem that we just heard. Well, you know, is, I you know, in in my mind there's there's a lot of the book in 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 that one poem. Yeah. But and it is such a different thing then experience to then be with a book from the beginning to the end with yeah. a book of poems yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think so. Yeah. Um if you find a book that, you know, is is consciously constructed that way and 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 you know, the books that interest me the most are. So um, some people just throw poems together and shake them up. But really, yeah, yeah. Who those are those people? Identify yourselves. <laughs> uh, uh, you know some of them, but I'm not going to mention. Okay, their names. okay. Ah, oh, why not? Why not? It's just us here, Keith. Mm-hmm. It's just us. Um, yeah. And Liz. And well, of course, the Liz. The Liz is <laughs> she's the um, the shining star in the north sky. North yeah. North sky is that. So, so there's a there's a poem in here too about the hybrid, and I'm wondering is that oh yeah is that's that, interesting is that the one is that about um, the the animal that now lives in Canada that's half wolf and half half is it coyote well, yeah and, half, and, and they call them coy wolves or yeah, um, yeah this was in, in 2010 um, up at the biological station where I've spent the last dozen summers um, and you, you met the Liz and I met too? the Liz yeah. there when she was doing her doing her, her research for her PhD on plant flatulation wow 
I was going to say, I don't even know what she did her dissertation on. Um, so in 2010, we thought we had pictures um, and proof that wolves had returned to the lower peninsula for the first time in 125 years and were denning here. I mean, there's been individual wolves down, but that there was a pair and they were denning uh, in the lower peninsula. And that spot where they were denning just happened to be on the 10,000 acres that the University of Michigan owns up there. Um, and that was pretty exciting, and everybody agreed. And there's the the, the DNR's, well, DEQ's main wolf guy, came, saw the the beasts, and was pretty sure of everything. Um, but then they did DNA studies, and they realized that they were, you know, they were hybrids. Um, so, um, so this 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 hybrid that was talked about maybe being more northern in Canada. There, no, there there are definitely koi wolves in the northern Lower Peninsula. Oh, there are. Yeah. And from what I've heard about them, too, they're sort of, um, they're different because they can be more aggressive. Well, is that right? Then that, that, what either you the know, other two? I've, I've, I saw that PBS show where they said that. But, Maybe that's where but, I heard uh, it. But I PBS. Think, yeah, PBS. <laughs> uh, which is great, of course, but occasionally they give us odd information. But I think what they, what, uh, the other thing they say is they've learned so well how to live with us. So, um they kind of know what they can do and what they can't do. When they were finding the tracks of this beast, um, there's a, a farm outside the biostation property that uh, has pig farms. And you can imagine, what's a wolf going to do with a piglet, right? This is candy kisses. Um, but that they found the tracks going right beside the, the pig pen um, and just walking along the edge of it and then just kept going. So this, bird, this, this beast had enough sense to know that it's not going to eat the... Uh, the, the little piglets because then it'll get shot. Right, um, right. So um, it was it was a really interesting thing to see. And with and with the hybrids, there's a pair of them, so that means they're they're able they're not like um, like a like they they can procreate. Them yeah, yeah. The, make... the the, the I mean, right now to to say I mean they're so that 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 those genes have mixed up so much with the, the coyote population up there now. It would be very difficult to say what's what. Oh. Um, I mean, they're going to call them coyotes because it's it's easier to call them coyotes, but almost all the coyotes in the northern part of the lower peninsula have some wolf blood in them. Do you have the, the book open to that? I do. I mean, this is the hybrid um, on Burt Lake. U of M owns and has kept wild the northern part of that lake. It's a beautiful spot. Um, most tourists know the southern part of that lake. It's a big lake. Um, and uh, and so this is um, this is a, a poem about the hybrid. I take my students down there, and we happen to find this. Uh, wolves, by the way, also walk in. They put their prints in a straight line. Coyotes tend to be a little more like dogs and are a little sloppier. The hybrid at Burt Lake. The straight line of prints looks planned as it moves down the thin strip of sand at the wild north end of Burt Lake. Here, far from docks and summer homes, the hybrid stocked a goose weakened by molt, ripped out the fleshy breast meat, and left the rest to a cloak of green and purple flies. Above the wash of waves against the beach, we hear a creature shuffle off into the forest behind us, a bird, perhaps a squirrel, maybe something bigger. We will never know for sure. Thank you, Keith. Sure. Thanks. <laughs> Um, you know, before we go to the break, okay, it occurs to me, I will read your bio. Oh, I know. Surprise, surprise, right? Okay. <laughs> At long last. <laughs> 
Keith Taylor teaches at the University of Michigan. He has published many books over the years, collections of poetry, a collection of very short stories, co-edited volumes of essays and fiction, and a volume of poetry translated from the modern Greek. Um, and there's a wonderful oil painting as your your portrait in here as well. It is, yeah. Um, um, a really wonderful painter from, from New York that the... Uh, Institute for the Humanities at the University of Michigan paid real money to to paint pictures of the poets at the university. And so now they have all these oil paintings they don't know what to do with. <laughs> uh, and that's one of them. And I like mine quite a bit. I, I do too, Keith. Yeah. Okay, we're going to be back. We're going to take a short break um, and talk more today with Keith Taylor. Um, his book of poems, The Bird While, out with Wayne State University Press. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Keith Taylor is here. His latest collection of poems, The Bird While. Um, so, Keith, um, we just heard a little Schumann. Um, right. So, here, here's here's a poem I wrote listening to uh, Interlock on Public Radio while driving around up in the woods. Schumann, while driving. Swallows keep time and cornfields become scenes in Scandinavian films I've never seen. I drive through final credits that follow an uncertain ending, neither happy nor sad. Oh, Scandinavian films, you know. You never know what to feel. <laughs> but it's interesting because earlier you were you were talking about the the feelings evoked within the, the book and the poem um, at Burt, the hybrid at Burt Lake, that was one of the poems of where we could feel like the devastation oh, and yeah, loss. Yeah, yeah. And then this one... It's more like you don't know. Maybe this is when it's coming. Yeah, I mean that—that that is a, that is a poem right toward the the last little cluster of of uh, poems in the book. Um, I didn't put this book in sections. Poets often do that, you know, one, two, three, four, because I didn't want to. Uh, but I did sort of leave these blank pages, when, which I thought of as hesitations, just as thought recovers. And then, as I was thinking about that, um, 
And I said, well, maybe I should get some drawings. And luckily, I have, I've known the illustrator, Tom Port, for a long time. And I said, Tom, you know, you want to put some drawings in my book of poems? And he said, yeah. So he did have the manuscript to work with and know what the facing page would be. Well, he had the manuscript to work with. And, and you know, he would, he, was, he would certainly respond to some pages. I think it was probably the book designer was probably the final arbiter of, of where the drawings would go. Um, I, you know, Tom would certainly have opinions, but, but, but probably the book designer made the final choices. And that would be um, the book designer of Wayne State University. Yeah, um, yeah and I think that they, they, um, I think they hired a freelancer to do this, but yeah, she did a good job. Instead of first design, I didn't like much. And matter of fact, I didn't like it all. Uh, but but uh, this was cleaned up kind of nicely, and I like the way it looks now. And when, so when that happens, what do you do? Well, like when I, you get like a like a is it a blue lines? Well, yeah, no, no. It, it, this was before that. This now now it's all on computer, so you can get a computer printout of what it looks like, or even just a, on the screen. Um, and you, when you sign a book contract, almost every boilerplate language is, uh, you know, although the publisher is very interested in the author's opinions about how the book looks, um, the publisher reserves the right to make the book look the way the publisher thinks it should look. So um, you get lots of people who, who have written books that they don't like the way it looks. Um, right. And, or, and or, a or, or a cover. Or a cover image. A cover that, that can... just, you know, it looks awful, yeah. Um, yeah, and that's because the publisher doesn't have to. Li- and the publisher, when they've invested money in how the book's going to look, they don't want to. They don't want to admit that they made a mistake. So, um, you know, all the all the cards are in their hand. Um, now, these people are my, at Wayne State are my friends, and they didn't want me to be upset. And so when I I sent a nasty email, they responded. <laughs> responded immediately. I'm sure it wasn't nasty. I'm sure it was more like. It was what's going. What are you thinking? It was pretty nasty. There might have even included words that I can't say even on WCBN. Even here, (laughs) at least at this time of day, (laughs) (laughs) on the on the literature program. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) Um, So, so, but so that means there was something about it that you just knew was not working, like how the the design with the images, the very same images, actually. Very same images, but the the designer had this idea that she wanted to make the book look distressed, like a field guide that had spent a lot of time in the woods. Mm. So there were soil marks and lines that looked like bird crap um and, oh, uh, um, you know, oh, and, and no. yeah That's it was an uh, interesting yeah, choice. it was uh um and that was interesting you know that idea was interesting for about three seconds and then it just looked messy right so, no i like what they went with which seems yeah. like it's more of a watercolor at first right. i thought i had done it right um, no no exactly but it yeah. was it's a blotted almost on like right. the title it's, page it's, it's when you enter the book do with the, the, the cover is tom port's watercolor um, and they worked in the, the the words sort of into the color scheme of of that, and made it, made the watercolor put the watercolor over part of the words. So and then that was that was reprinted on the title page. So so that was it. So that's one of the yeah. to make it feel almost maybe more right. like it's organic or there's it's exactly m- movement is yep. possible yep. or yep. so. Um, um, and we we like the, the painting that this is done off is just. I mean, Tom do, often does tiny little things, as you can see from some of the illustrations. Um, so they took this tiny little watercolor and blew it up. So so the watercolor itself is not nearly the whole thing is not the size of the of the book um and the the detail here is probably only half the painting and the painting's tiny so it get the, got this really sort of 
foggy look to it that that Tom and I both ended up liking quite a bit. Mm, yes, it's lovely. Yeah. It is. And how I'm well, I'm glad that you st- said something so that the images are. Yeah. Yeah, well, me too. It would have been it would have been embarrassing otherwise, and I would have had to sit here and talk to you and been embarrassed. <laughs> and it is radio, so oh, yeah. <laughs> everyone go out and buy a copy so you can see what we're we're, we're talking That's about um, the bird while. Um, so so Keith, yeah, we so bring let's bring it back closer to home here okay. in Ann Arbor um, with the bird rescue. Okay, um, there aren't a lot of purely narrative poems in here, poems that have stories, although I have written many poems like that. But this is one. Um, My friend and neighbor, um, Sherry Smith, who teaches fiber arts out at the art school and has has done that for years. Um, She is also a, um, works with uh, Washtenaw Bird Rescue, um, and she's a certified um, habilitator of of damaged birds. Um, As a matter of fact, two nights ago, um, my wife and I worked with her to clean a loon that she'd found in the median strip of US-23. Loons can't walk, really, because they're a very primitive bird, and they need 100 yards of water to take off. This bird had come down in that wind and rain on Monday, I think. Um, and uh, and so Sherry went out and caught it, and then we took it to the art school and we washed it. Bird didn't like that a whole lot. Um, matter of fact, that mark right there is from the loon. Uh, but we got the bird clean, and we got it dried, and we took it out to Barton Pond, and it drifted off in the dark. So um, this is a different one. This, this a different one, bird. This is, this is not, this poem is from an earlier rescue that I worked with, a, a horned grebe. Um, not a bird, a bird not unrelated to a loon. But um, so this is one we did with Sherry. So the poem is dedicated to Sherry Smith. And it's called Bird Rescue. Some reasonable people think the horned grebe floating down the Detroit River between car-sized ice flows, diving deep into current to search for fish, then rising into a pool of oil or synthetic fuel, deserved to die, maladjusted, they say, to our new world. But the grebe gasped its way to shore ice, water seeping through spoiled feathers. A sentimental soul found it there, quivering in snow, tried to wipe away the oil, then brought it here. We warmed the bird, fed it mealworms, and waited for some liveliness before bringing out our dawn, detergent of choice for bird rescue. I stared into its red eye and held the grebe, trembling and tense, under a gentle stream of water warmer than anything it had felt in months, while the real bird rescuer worked the soap in, lifting the oil out. She succeeded when the feathers fluffed on their own. The grebe was light in my hands. Its hollow bones felt delicate, breakable, until a wing flapped against me, strong and longing for flight. A day later, we took our horned grebe down to the Huron and the one patch of open water below Barton Dam. It scuttled out of its cage, dove quickly, then surfaced a few few yards farther away, ruffled its feathers, and drifted down to join the indifferent ducks. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, all the things you have to do and the things you have to be careful of, so you really have to be trained to know how to handle birds um, so they don't die while you're handling them. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, they're, they're freaking out. And, um, yeah, how is it that you're able to not damage their wings? Well, I mean, the, um, the loon, I, would, I, I held the wings in to the body and held the body fairly. I don't have to be as delicate as with a little bird because the, the, the thoracic pressure 
um, can kill a little bird. But so I held the wings in um, and and just sort of held the bird very tightly. Sherry or Christine held the head um, and then worked with the with whatever we had to deal with with the the beak and the bill. Um, but uh, yeah, then we got it. We got it clean. We got it out there. So does, hopefully it's okay. Does the bird, like in your experience, Keith? I hope so too. I hope it is yeah, still o- yeah. okay out there. Does the bird, at a certain point, settle down yeah, like, to know yeah. that you're helping? Maybe, well, I don't think I don't think there's or... that knowledge. It, the bird is conserving. The bird is probably at the edge of shock the whole time. The bird is clearly conserving its energies um, till till a time when it can it can. Um, Try to try to get free. I, you know, I mean, I, wh- how much does a bird understand? Wouldn't we like to think that it's like, oh, you know, be careful, loon or horn grebe. We're we're actually doing this for your good. Uh, you know, I mean, how much does a bird understand? We don't know, um, well, and we never will know. Because so. when even when you said Sherry saw the bird on the the median of twenty three, I was thinking. Right. How did she go about then capturing? It well, and, uh, uh, um, somebody going home at, at you know rush hour saw the bird and, and you knew I knew it was a loon and knew a loon would be stuck in the in the median. Called up bird rescue and Sherry went out there and she's got a net. The bird couldn't get away because again they can't it can't, it can't fly take off if um, it's without and them. it can't walk. So she took her big net and she caught it pretty quickly and pretty easily. Um, and she knows how to catch it without damaging its wings. Um, that's a that's a big thing that people have to be trained to do. Um, got it got it by herself into a cage and then conscripted Christine and I to help her with the next stages. So so it sounds like you've also had training now. Well, the training any training I've had I've had from Sherry Smith. Yeah, I'm not I'm not official by any means. What so. do you want to be? Is that something? I, you know, yeah, maybe when I retire, maybe it could be something I would do. It, it, it's, you You're feel, not going to retire. I am so. When? A year from now. Really? Yeah. It's in the the it's on the calendar. It's on the calendar. It's on my calendar. Yeah. Keith Taylor. Yeah. Hmm. Well, not students gonna, not get work get, on... get your classes in with Keith Taylor while you can. <laughs> not going to work on Maggie's farm no more. <laughs> yeah. So then maybe then the birds like doing like yeah more... you know yeah it, it's it's you know there's some things I want to get done before I leave this veil of tears, um, and and at least one of those big things has to do with a lot of birds so. How many birds have you seen? My official list, because Cornell University now keeps track of my official list. Really? Did, yes, okay. Um, is 680. Today, if I'd seen the rough, it would have been 681. I have older lists that exist um, that I haven't been able to find yet for Greece and Ireland and Hawaii. Um, but I can't really enter them on the Cornell site unless I've got my field notes. Really? So, yeah, they're just stuck even somewhere. If, even if you have the notes oh, in yeah, your mind. Yeah, but I can't, you know, yeah, I'd have to I'd have to verify it. And I can't, you need a physical, need, some sort of print a copy from to, a yeah. field note. I either need to make my electronic entry the day of or, or I need field notes in case someone questions me. And they do. They question me all the time. Who's they? Whoever whoever ver- tries to verify the, da- the data on this uh, site, it's called eBird. It's a citizen science site now around the world. Uh, we're learning an awful lot um, about bird, you know, uh, population size and, and migration times and things like that. Change from climate change, the, um, you know, the, the, the shift of populations from climate change. Um, so we're learning a lot from this citizen. That's all one, you know, sighting at a time. Um, and there are a couple million people who are entering their sites on the Cornell site. Might I have been on it today by accident when I was searching for the rough? You might have, yeah. Cause, okay, because yeah, you them, don't have to be like approved or a member to be uh, on it. I think you can get to the explore data, data okay. part without, yeah. Um, there's a Mich- Michigan Lister site too that, that would have allowed you in. Um, plus there's a Facebook page too. 
So there's the rough, and then the female is the reeve. Very good. And good job. Yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to dazzle you I a know, little bit, I, Keith I, Taylor. I, 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 I'm, I'm even more dazzled. <laughs> even more dazzled. <laughs> we'll take a short break now, <laughs> and then we'll be back. Today on Living Writers, Keith Taylor is here. His book of poems, The Birdwile, will be back. <laughs> Um, I'm glad that you're you're here listening um, because today on the program Keith Taylor um, is here um, reading poems from his latest book The Bird While um, and we're talking about birds and and life um, on writing yeah yeah and, you know, it's all writing and spring right spring, spring it feels and, like spring yeah. out there today yeah it, the birds were clearly feeling. The spring and the students were also clearly <laughs> feeling the spring. So yeah, it's it's definitely spring. Um, Keith, I had a question about um, form because the the poems are like very various, varying in length. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And one of them I thought was a hybin, and I wondered if that was um, uh, yeah what the the, the hybin, which which um, you know in the Japanese form that mixes prose and a haiku. Um, and yeah, I have several of these, um, and again, it's not as formal as as the Japanese um, form can be. Um, so I see the one that you have open now. Actually, yeah. I was another one too that I was thinking the Bay of Islands attacked by oyster, oyster catchers earlier. Yeah. Um, but yes, I see that. So yeah, I got this little one. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a thing that interests me because you'll have you can have very prosaic moments and then startle it with a little lyric moment. Um, 
and I've done, I mean, the four or five that are in here, I've probably done another four or five. I, I You know, it could be a, an interesting thing to do. So when did, um, yeah, when did you start writing th- with this form? Because I love how you describe it, too. Like what, my what first it, real book um, was designed as a book of prose poems. So, um, you know, whatever that means. But I teach a graduate class on it, and we still don't come up with an answer. But um, <laughs> It's the mystery yeah, that keeps us. Uh, but but the, the Basho, I mean, again, don't read Japanese, but the Basho Haibun in his book... Um, um, the narrow road to the interior, or the narrow road to the deep north, it's sometimes translated as, um, as a travel diary. Um, it's just a gorgeous book. When I've read that for 40, 50 years, um, Gary Snyder has done these kinds of things. Uh, a couple books ago, um, a wonderful book called Danger on Peaks. Uh, he's got several of these, so these these sort of look like him. So, you know, when I have things that I want to get into them, and uh, they can either be travel narratives or they can be, you know, have a lot of information that you want to get in a very prosy kind of sentence. This is a tiny little one. It's about my favorite place in the state of Michigan. Um, it's 12 square miles of, um, of stumps, stumps that were logged in the 1880s. Um, and then the, wow. it's just above Lake Superior. It's just inland a bit from um, from. A pictured Rocks National Lakeshore. You know, I laughed when you said stumps because it's stumps. kind of a funny word, but it's actually not. Now that I'm picturing it, that's that's not a, a like it's it's might seem very sad or desolate. Yeah, really. they look they look an awful lot like uh, tombstones. Um, mm-hmm. And and so what happened was they logged these gigantic white pine trees, white pine trees that had a, you know, that were six feet across, five Jeez. feet, six feet across. They had put all the slash there. Um, and then the fire started, it was fed by the winds coming off Lake Superior, and the fire burned so hot that all the organic matter in the first foot of soil um, burned off, um, and, and nothing grew there for 130 years. Little lichen, paper lichen, and sort of, they would sort of crumble, and slowly, 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 soil has been made again, and now things are happening um few scraggly little trees coming and blueberries coming you know and blueberries it's like i love blueberries and it's like i gotta write a book about blueberries so there is nothing we can do as individuals or as a species to deserve a blueberry or to deny the blueberry exactly yeah we can't do that but but you know it's like so in this place where we devastated the landscape to the much that we killed the soil there's, it's like the planet forgives us. It's like there's this blue, suddenly blueberries. That's it, so cool. So, so, it, so it takes time. It takes took, a lot of in time. In this particular place, it took 130, 140 years. Yeah. But, but then. Um, which is a long time by our scales. Yeah. Um, so the place is called the Kingston Plains. Those stumps are sometimes referred to as the ghost forest. Gray stumps of white pines were almost charred into immortality by a fire so hot it burned off all the organic matter in the top several inches of soil. Little but lichen grew here for 130 years, and now, finally, a clump of small, ripe blueberries. So anyway, that tiny little poem with what, however many words it has, is, that's one of my sort of favorites in there. And it is, this place is, is wonderful. I take uh, my students there from the biological station, took one there last year, and she walked out in the and fell asleep, uh, which means she didn't come back when we honked the horns. And I just suddenly had this terrible thought that the UP wolves had gotten my my uh, U of M undergraduate. And, but she just had gone to sleep, so it was okay. 
<laughs> just had, with well, a pillow, pillow of lichen. That yeah. Was like <laughs> yeah, I was frightened for a moment. She disappeared oh. behind some stump somewhere, sound asleep. Oh, yeah. oh, goodness. How do I explain this to her parents? Yeah. No, no. Yeah, they just... So sorry. But she woke up and got back, which and, is good. And had the oneness of, you know, yeah. with nature. Yeah, um, good place to die. Experience. You know, if, if you've got to pick a place to die, Kingston Plains would be a good place. Hey, hey. <laughs> well, it's, We're it's not going to talk about that. Okay. Well, 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 we could. We could. But it's curious that you said, like, um, like this... When we were, you know, off air, but well, we we're listening to some bird songs. Yes. And, um, uh, and great music with crows um, as the yep. backbeat, I guess, was. Um, but you were saying this is like one of your, you know, it is, it's a, I love this place, a yep. favorite place in yep. Michigan. Yep. And so it's so interesting that then some of the, the next descriptors are, um, it looks like yeah. it's <laughs> stumps of tombstones right, or right. so this. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a, when I take people there and, and I probably have already taken too many people there because it's going to get known, but, but. Um, there's no way you can describe it and have it come across as beautiful. Um, and people get there and they're immediately stunned. I mean, it's f so quiet, not even bird call. Um, these stumps and these long grasses and, and people walk out into them. Almost always people go alone. It's a, it's a place for, you know, if you come in a group, people split up because um, it's, a, it's a place for solitude. Uh, and nobody talked. Um, I mean, you know, I don't have to tell them not to talk. It just nobody talks because it's 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 a place that has that creates an ambience that that is undeniable. So far, to everyone I've taken there, whether they share my perspectives on the world or not, um, you know, they respond in a particular way. And how many times have you returned there then? Oh, been I've been in Kingston Plains. Uh, you know, I've been in Kingston Plains. Oh God, twenty, twenty-five, fifty times. I've been there a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's. We work at the bio station. You're only about two or three hours away from it. I go to the UP a lot, and every time I go to the UP, I go there. Like a pilgrimage. Well, yeah, it's you know spiritual rejuvenation in the place of dead trees. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it yeah. works. It's, too. it's an amazing spot. Yeah. Um, you gotta, and you got to work to get there. You, 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 well, you, is that you, part of it then? Yeah, your car's going to get dirty. Um, I stuck a university van there last year. We had to we worked for an hour and a half to get it out. Yeah, so it's you know you got to work to get there. So. Maybe each time it's like it's teaching you something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or so. Do not drive university vans on on sand. On sand, on sandy two tracks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Keith, there. I feel like there's um, there's so much to say. You've got um, you've got a pe poem. Um, for Emily Dickinson in the book, I um, do. I do. You've got yeah. a poem that I, I I told you off air. The Weaver that also um, uh, made me cry. Yeah, um, good, good. We like to make know. people cry. Should we go out on the Weaver? Sure. You want to go out on the Weaver? Are we and there? then and then maybe you could say something very cheerful about protecting <laughs> piping plovers at the. Oh, which afterwards. is my hat. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the Weaver. Um, this is really. The same person, Sherry Smith, who told me this story, um, although I make her a little older in this poem, so there's a little bit of fictionalizing of Sherry in this poem. And she is a weaver. She runs the, the, the weaving rooms at the art school. The weaver. Now that her eyes are failing, the weaver visits an abandoned gravel pit in early May, just when bank swallows have returned to dig their burrows into the loose cliffs. 
She takes an old pillow, fraying, about to split, filled with the white down of domesticated geese. She stands at the lip of the pit, rips open the pillow, and releases handfuls of white feathers into the drafts blowing up against her. The swallows swirl in, pluck feathers from the air, swoop close to pick the small ones that catch in the weaver's hair. And, you know, I mean, that works. They, get, they use these feathers to line the nests that they dig out of the walls of the gravel pits. Um, bank swallows, so they're kind, of, they're kind of cool. And there's something about that moment where the swallow is, again, so close to pluck a feather out of right. her hair, right. like the bird's uh, wing that brushes your cheek Ex in another exactly. poem. Exactly, exactly. Um, you put yourself in those situations and wonderful things can happen. It's, it's yeah. some, it, is it something about flight, do you think, and the delicacy and the, the strength also yeah. of the birds? Or? I mean, you don't want to be too easy, but flight and song are clearly our sort of mythic attraction to birds you know they can fly and they sing songs and they disappear for long periods of time um, all these things fascinate us on some visceral level even the disappearance yeah yeah and then they come back no and matter what we do and they come back yeah thank you keith taylor certainly you keep My coming pleasure, back Keith. okay please sure please sure, <laughs> um thank you Today on Living Writers, Keith Taylor, um, his book, The Birdwile, out with Wayne State University Press. Um, thanks to everyone for listening. Um, thanks to the Liz for engineering. Always. I know. Long may it last. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. I can't look at the rocket launch trophy wives of the astronauts and i won't listen to their words because i like birds Stadium loving it. Oh, Finally, the fruits movie. of their labor paying off, Absolutely getting a goal. And welcome to the Daily Sports Report 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor at 6.01 Eastern Standard Time. I'm your host today, Dalton Pataki, on the other side. Other side of the glass, we have Ian Austin, Jeff. Fellas, how you doing? Pretty doing good. Pretty good, yeah. Yeah, not bad, for not what? bad. For a midweek. 
Yeah, I mean, beautiful day out. Uh, yeah. What would you say? It's 65 and nothing but sun. That sounds about right. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. A little so, windy, but yeah, that's fine. Can't complain. No. Uh, Austin, I'm going to let you take the beginning of the show. We're going to... A little bit of Michigan uh, baseball went on, uh, so take it away. Yeah, I think we had uh, our own Leo Blavin and Andrew Hausman on the call yesterday for Eastern Michigan versus Michigan. Uh, a real tight game, went to 13 innings, and the number 13th ranked Michigan Wolverines pulled it off in the 13th, won 2-1. Uh, ahead of a big 